Hello, everyone out there, and welcome to a special holiday edition of this little show. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe, and if you're new here, what happens is this. Every week, I find my head has been removed from my body and attached to the body of another friend and movie lover. Together, we're given a note containing a theme, sometimes cryptic and sometimes specific. It is then our job to pick a pair of movies inspired by that theme, watch, and discuss. This is the Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. So let's get right into it today, shall we? My guest and host body today is Corey Pulaski. Corey, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Good. Uh, how was your, I mean, we're recording this a little bit in advance. So how was your, uh, your kind of like lockdown Thanksgiving week? Oh, it was actually great. Um, you'd be really, really stupid if you tried to convince me to actually go back to my family's house for Thanksgiving moving forward. Um, no, we had a great time. It was just me and my partner and the dogs and we Zoom called with the family and everybody was socially distant and it was actually probably the least stressful Thanksgiving I've had in over a decade. I I, I get that completely. My partner and I would switch families every holiday season one year it would be thanksgiving with my family and christmas with hers and we'd flip it the next year and sure. i do kind of miss more for the kids than ourselves i miss that family experience but it, it's also so relaxing and i don't mean this as a knock on any of our families but it is so relaxing to just have the four of us as a family unit in the house on that day preparing food, watching the MST3K Turkey Day Marathon, and, you know, not not having to worry about any of that other stuff. It's just us. And it's very relaxing and calming. I, I've, I've very much enjoyed our holidays the last six years that we've been down here. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with the um, <clears throat> just not needing to travel because that's such a huge part of the stress for me. Um, but also, I never get to cook. Uh, for Thanksgiving. I never do. My grandmother is the cook of the family and cooking is like my form of stress release. So it was just really fun this year. I had a good time. We ate way too much. We still have too much food in the fridge and the sandwiches are endless. Yeah, that that's an issue. The first couple of years down here, I made turkey and I really like, I really like cooking a lot. I like being in the kitchen most of the day, um, strangely enough, but it's way too much food for us. All right, so uh, we've got this theme in front of us and the theme that we were given, the note here says Christmas carols. So that seems a little specific. So we're gonna take a little break. It's gonna just be a couple of seconds for you listening. We will come back and we will talk about the first movie that we have chosen. Ah. He was the greediest man alive. It's Ebenezer Scrooge. Until the night he met someone extraordinary. Hello. The Muppet Christmas Carol. I'll drink to Mr. Scrooge. Even though he is odious, mm -hmm. stingy, mm -hmm. and badly dressed. 
humbug. Think it's safe for us to be up here? Yeah! It's a game of prize for being me. The winner would be him. Yes, Mr. Cratchit. If you please, Mr. Scrooge. The bookkeeping staff would like to have an extra shovel full of coal for the fire. We're assets of frozen. How would the bookkeepers like to be suddenly unemployed? This is my island in the It's Charles Dickens' classic tale. As only the Muppets can tell it. It's good to be heckling again. It's good to be doing anything again. Filled with holiday warmth. Hey, 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 like the lamp, not the rat, like the lamp, not the rat. And Christmas spirit. Scrooge. Jacob Molly. Oh, that's scary stuff. Should we be worried about the kids in the audience? No, it's all right. This is culture. This is the movie to see, to share. Ah! to cherish with someone you love. Thank you for making me a part of this. Walt Disney Pictures presents, from Jim Henson Productions, The Muppet Christmas Carol. God bless us, everyone. Whatever. All right, and up first, it's The Muppet Christmas Carol. Now, yeah. everybody knows this story. The Muppet Christmas Carol is a retelling of the classic Charles Dickens tale with a fully committed Michael Caine stepping into the lead role as Ebenezer Scrooge amid a London seemingly populated solely by Muppets and his own extended family members. Like I said, everybody knows this story, so I don't really need to get too much into the plot here. We'll just get right into our discussions. I, of course, this is a movie that I watch pretty much every year and have for the past six or so years it is one of well we'll we'll find the rest of those later but it's one of several films that i have to watch every year or i don't hmm. have to watch i get to watch with my oldest daughter like it, it is not christmas for her unless we watch this and some of the other movies i'll be talking about later so i am very familiar with this movie i'm assuming like it's kind of one of those modern holiday classics even though it is almost 30 years old by now how about for you is this one that you've gone back to much in so, the past yes um my I, I mentioned earlier you know uh, i live with my partner and this is uh, actually a christmas eve tradition for us is to watch about the christmas carol specifically because of the song uh there's only one more sleep till christmas <laughs> yes that's that is a phrase that gets thrown around here a lot when you we we talk about like six more sleeps till Christmas or whatever. Yeah. Man, I kind of feel bad. I made I made my daughter watch all these Christmas movies this week. And they're usually movies we watch on Christmas week, like Christmas Eve. So I think I think we're gonna have to watch them again the next month. Absolutely. I mentioned to my partner, like, hey, we're gonna be watching a couple Christmas movies this week am I gonna watch these on my own or do you want to join me and the second I told him what movies they were he's like no watch those on your own those are going to be tradition the closer we get to Christmas because he he burns out like a candle man you show him a movie once and he doesn't want to watch it again for another three four years so I'm lucky enough to have like a yearly tradition with him I didn't want to spoil it early um but that's okay because we just got to a brand new TV set up in our, in our bedroom. So this was uh, the inaugural movie was Muppet Christmas Carol. And, um, you know, I, I think 
because I only watch it once a year, uh, I forgot how much like childlike joy is really brought to the table when you first see Gonzo as Charles Dickens. Like, I don't know what it is, but something about such a familiar, like cartoonish face playing like the quote unquote reliable narrator of the story. I don't know. It just, it always makes me happy that first screen where he's like, I'm Charles Dickens and Rizzo Rizzo is just not believe him. No. Why would you? Um, Rizzo is my second favorite Muppet. uh, So I'm very happy he has a large role in this film. Although my favorite Muppet does make a quick cameo. I don't know about you. My personal favorite is the Swedish chef. Um, Okay. Yeah, and he's very briefly at at the Fezziwig party uh, where we meet a young Scrooge played by a young man who is way better looking than a young Michael Caine. And uh, come on, Michael Caine back (laughs) in the 70s, like get Carter. he looks so much like my dad. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, like it's it's kind of an issue how much he looks like my dad. But but no, like I one of the notes that I wrote down specifically when I was watching through this movie was that Michael Caine can successfully play opposite of anyone, including a seven foot tall pile of fabric, which he does in the end of the movie with uh, the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come. But um, particularly. Michael Caine's performance in this is it's really solidifies that role that Michael Caine played in my childhood. But, you know, when you think of Michael Caine, you don't think of kids movies, but this was definitely one of them along with like Miss Congeniality and things (laughs) like that. Yeah. And the thing is, is like, I got to know Michael Caine after Michael Caine stopped taking himself seriously. So a lot of his earlier movies like Alfie and stuff like that, I never saw until I was an adult. Um, so I grew up with this, this idea of Michael Caine kind of just being like this silly old man, British actor, a la John Cleese or what have you. And it couldn't be more of the opposite uh, in terms of what actually built his career. I feel like this was like one of those interesting transition points in his career, but I could be wrong. Well, Michael Caine has always had this habit of kind of appearing in anything. You can say that as an insult to somebody, but it strikes me as a very British theater actor state of mind where work is work and they will appear in anything just as long as they keep working. Um, because he's, he's been in his fair share of schlock. Oh, and yeah. Of course, of course you know, <laughs> notoriously, he was in Jaws for the revenge. And What he said about that was that he's never seen the movie, but he has seen the house that it bought, and it's very nice. (laughs) So he that's lovely. There's there's a lot of British actors that I think of as incredibly serious, like Terrence Stamp is one uh, to some degree. Michael Fassbender nowadays, and yet they will they will still appear in these movies, and you'll be like, "What the hell are you doing? You're a bigger caliber star than this." but it's just because they want to keep working like Peter O'Toole as well. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, totally. Um, it's funny that you mentioned Fassbender. I watched a movies, a movie of his recently that was just so out of left field that I was like, I had to double check the IMDb to make sure I'm like, are you sure that's Fassbender? Um, was it Frank? No, it, it, 
It was Frank. I loved that movie so much that I immediately was like, dad, you have to watch this. Um, that's kind of my relationship with my dad is he tells me what music I need to listen to and I tell him what movies he needs to watch. Um, and Frank was a, was a big one. Domhnall Gleeson in that movie is fantastic. And it, it's, it's very funny while also being very vulnerable. And I enjoyed it a lot. And I'm glad that he kind of has that career where he's not afraid to kind of take a wild swing in terms of what jobs he takes. And uh, yeah, no, that was a, that was a home run as far as I'm concerned. That's a, a bonus recommendation in this episode. Frank, Frank is a good movie. You heard it here first. But about, yeah, Michael Caine in this movie, it, it's funny you, you kind of consider him as like a kind of a silly older British actor because in this movie, he plays it so seriously like he, oh, he gives full richard burton shakespeare like it's kind of intense to watch especially um in that first scene with um well it, in this story the marley brothers where he's just like freaking out uh, believing that these ghosts have come to kill him like it's so shakespearean and serious and you almost forget that he's playing opposite of a puppet well, there's also the scene early on, and it's actually hilarious to me. It, so when his nephew comes to visit, and mm -hmm. he he's, he kicks out his nephew, or his nephew leaves, but then uh, Bean Bunny knocks on the door, and he's singing Christmas carols. And uh, Yeah, Good King Wenceslas. Yeah, Michael Caine like, slams the door on him, and then he opens the door again just to throw the crumpled up wreath at him, and he throws it with so much anger. That's not just like a, a light toss. That is a, I'm doing damage throw. And his anger is played so completely seriously that not only is he scary, it's actually quite funny because, I mean, I don't know about you, but one thing that always makes me laugh is unearned anger. When people are angry about like the, the, the smallest thing, it, it, it's yeah. what John Cleese made his career out of in the 70s with Faulty Towers, just like that, that zero to Absolutely. 60 rage. It's almost like the opposite of church giggles like when you're in church and they're talking about something so somber and everybody's so serious you just can't help but giggle it's kind of like that but in like the extreme opposite sense but no Michael Caine is so believably angry in the entire first half of the movie you know watching it as a kid you're like oh that's 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 the bad guy that's the scary old man but watching it as an adult, you're like, oh my God, no, he really was the the scary old man. Like he, he like went full method actor on it. I feel like, especially with that wreath moment, because like, you're right. He didn't just toss it at a rabbit. He like straight up frisbeed it at him, like meant to hurt him. And that's just such a, such an interesting take for what's for all intents and purposes a children's movie plus, plus um, but i also think that's what makes it that's what makes it good you know plus he, he's throwing it at bean bunny who is objectively one of the most adorable muppets oh he's so fuzzy and cute yeah it's you you don't want to hurt him but michael kane does because he doesn't have a heart in this movie or i i mean i should say ebenezer scrooge does because uh i don't want people to think that in any sense, Michael Caine wants to abuse puppets. But if he does, that's a different story. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we don't... <laughs> who knows what goes on behind closed doors? But 
he commits. That's that's the thing. He commits so fully to this that Scrooge or Michael Caine, it doesn't seem like it often doesn't seem like a performance. Uh, it, it is him just kind of disappearing into that role as if he's playing it with. And he actually said this himself, that he he played the movie as if he was with the Royal Shakespeare acting company. Like he was taking it seriously. He wasn't going to wink or do any silly stuff with the Muppets. Well, I believe that 100%. And I don't, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, the Dickens estate, they've gone on record saying that A Muppet Christmas Carol is um, the most accurate film adaptation of the original story. I hadn't heard that, but I definitely believe it because there's, there's a lot of touches in this that don't get called up anywhere else. Unlike some other versions of this that are out there, this one has a very, what's, what, how am I trying to say it? It retains the kind of gothic dreariness and spookiness of the original story and um, kind of the, I guess, the, the dirtiness, maybe not the dirtiness. What's the word I'm looking for? Like, I, I'm trying it's not to gritty. use the word Dickensian, but you know what I mean? Like that, that kind well, of like soot yes, covered... And everything it's, is a little bit grimy and hard scrabble. Yeah. Like everybody's got that that thin layer of coal dust on their face. No, absolutely. They they stay true to like the original time frame and the original setting of it. It's just it's very tongue-in-cheek about it. The dialogue from the movie is almost word for word bang on with the dialogue that's in the book but with those little muppet asides that you know like a wink and a nudge you're in on the joke now too um and it makes some of the satirical parts of the original christmas carol more apparent to a younger audience which i really which i really appreciate and you don't get that very often because here's a children's movie saying, here's a story. This is the same story that adults read and we're giving it to you as a child, but we're going to make it more entertaining for you by not only having the majority of the cast be colorful, fuzzy puppets, but also you're in on the joke now. You are with us on this story and you're not an outsider looking in trying to understand what's happening. We're carrying you throughout the whole story. And I think more children's stories should take that approach but i'm also not a parent or an educator so i don't really know what's good for children what's great about it is the muppets bring in a reverence and a, a kind of their anarchic spirit to the story but it is never an irreverence towards the heart of the story it's an irreverence towards some of the events in the story but it's not mocking or taking away from the heart of the story which is in many ways a very melancholy story like this movie yeah no it's it's sad as hell yeah this movie more than most christmas carols i've ever seen it is obsessed with mortality mortality is on its mind down to the point that one of the things that never gets adapted in a christmas carol is that the gro the ghost of Christmas present ages and dies over the course of his appearance? Yes, he does. And that is in here. Yeah. And this movie is is very much focused on. I mean, Scrooge is going to die. We all know that from the story. I mean, he doesn't die in the story. Yeah. We just know that his death, future death, 
is is something that he goes to visit. And it's the same with Tiny Tim. And that is underlined in this movie much, much more than in most other versions I can think of. Oh yeah, and, they they skipped underlining it. They highlighted it. Like they made sure you understood the intensity of mortality in this story. Which like, hey, go for it. Honestly, let's teach kids about dying. Why not? <laughs> I think a lot of that is probably doing due to the fact that this is the first Muppets project not post Jim yeah, Henson, post Jim right? Henson's death and yeah. the death of uh, performer Richard Hunt. Yes. Who was alive during production of this movie, but he was too sick from complications arising from HIV AIDS to be involved. So his perform his characters were performed by others. His characters don't normally don't really appear that much. I think Beaker is in here. And I, I think that might be the only one he would perform. Um, I think you're right. Yeah. But he wasn't able to be involved in production and he passed away about a year before it came out into theaters. So the fact that this group of performers, this family, because Jim Henson did form a family with all of his Muppeteers and the people that he worked with, and then Brian Henson directing this, everybody has literally and figuratively just lost their father. And this movie the tone of this movie, I think, is very informed by that, especially the scene around the dinner table when the ghost of Christmas yet to come takes Scrooge to show the Cratchit, uh, Bob Cratchit's family, and they're all talking, mm -hmm. and Tiny Tim has died recently. Uh, Cratchit has just come back from visiting his grave. He has that line. I'm going to quote it here, but he has the line, life is made up of meetings and partings. That is the way of it. I am sure that we shall never forget Tiny Tim or this first parting that there was among us. You think about that scene and the people performing it and writing it, I'm sure they were thinking of those two, of Richard oh, Hunt yeah. and Jim Henson. It's such a somber moment in a kid's movie. The Muppets are there to lighten things and the, the humor is great in this, but it never forgets the sadness. And this movie kind of feels like it is also being made by people who are maybe the saddest they've been. <laughs> at, at, and yet... They're trying for happiness. They are getting together to create happiness. I, I feel like the outcome of this movie is both a beautiful memorial to the people that they lost, but it's also a very clear airing of grief. And specifically in the scene you're talking about with, with Tiny Tim and the, you know, life is made up of meetings and, and partings and... I feel like it was meant to be apparent that that was the message that they were trying to get across, but also it's very possible that they didn't know they were trying to get that point across until they, until they did it, you know? Whether it was conscious or not, it was definitely, I mean, it had to be on their minds. Whether they realized what they were doing, it, their actions were still informed by this, these recent events. And maybe, maybe I'm just, you know, uh, reading too much into it, but hey, art belongs to the- It's totally possible. <laughs> art belongs I to the I also believe though, oh yeah, and I, I also believe that the Muppets are for adults and children just like them because they're colorful. <laughs> like, honestly, that's, it's what I believe because a lot of the, the humor that the Muppets have is very tongue-in-cheek adult-esque humor, but- Man, when they when they touch on a sensitive topic and they they go into that 
that reverence that they find in every single one of their movies. You know, I feel very much that those moments are meant for the people who grew up with the Muppets, who became adults with the Muppets. You know what I mean? I mean, like specifically, oh man, I cannot remember for the life of me which Muppets movie it was from. I want to say Muppets Take Manhattan, where they have that song saying goodbye. Like they know what they're doing. They're trying to make the parents cry while the kids laugh and clap and yay, it's Kermit, you know? Yeah, <laughs> but I appreciate I, them for that. Yeah, I, I agree. The genius of Jim Henson, it's such a tricky tight wire or tightrope act that as much as I enjoy the, some of the later period Muppets, it's a tightrope act that nobody has been able to replicate like he was of yes being for adults having relatable and recognizable moments in his projects that pretty much adults will understand maybe more strongly than children and yet mm -hmm. also i think the muppets are for for kids maybe not all of the muppets projects but I think it's just for everyone you know they, i i think they're broaching these things in a way within irreverence and a humor so that kids kind of get a safe introduction to some maybe some more complicated emotions that they might not yet fully understand everybody thinks that they get the muppets on like a deeper level than somebody else like everybody's like oh the muppets i really get that it's because you had that childhood moment where you grew with the muppets and had these realizations about what they had been telling you all along and right it, and it seems like like it is forming your childhood in a way anybody that grew up with the muppets that is yeah, and to me, it's no different than, you know, all the kids who learned about death through Mr. Hooper dying on Sesame Street or who learned about, you know, racial tension from Mr. Rogers. You know, it's like, I feel like a lot of children's programming, specifically from like the mid-70s until like the early 90s, did have a lot of of that where we want to tell an adult or like give an adult message that we want the children to understand. So we're kind of going to slow roll them into, into understanding exactly what it is that the adults are feeling right now. You know, everyone's welcome at the table kind of thing. I mean, cause personally speaking, I did learn about death through Mr. Hooper and um, you know, I did watch, Mr. Rogers and learn all those fun life lessons from him. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that a lot of really important emotional life lessons I learned growing up were from the Muppets. So way to go children's programming from that time era. They did a good job, I think. I think everybody of our generation remembers Mr. Hooper. <laughs> like that's such, yeah. a, that's such a formative moment. Oh my gosh. I mean, I obviously didn't watch it in real in real time because I'm pretty sure that happened before I did, but it was constantly on PBS on reruns. And when that episode would come up, well, I'm not going to turn it off because, oh, this is the sad one. You know, I was young and learning and I learned some really, really important stuff from that show and from Jim Henson as a whole. I was five when that happened. I can't claim to have like super specific memories of like, like everybody remembers where they were the day this happened, yeah. uh, but I know I would have seen it. I remember then having that conversation with my mom. I just remember the, the feeling of learning and realizing for the first time in your life that you are going to die and how, Oh man, like, like 
how rough that is. And we had to go through it with our oldest daughter as well. It's so rough. Like you just, your heart goes out. Cause it's like, I remember, I remember this so vividly having this yeah. exact realization. Merry Christmas, everybody. Yeah. Yay. Merry Christmas. We're talking about the Muppets and, you know, imminent mortality. Uh, I think, I think that's perfectly in line with this movie though. Totally. Absolutely. It's, it's definitely on brand, but I think also it's important to, while we do shine a light on the, the darker, more macabre theme of the movie, it's so fun. It's a musical. Like you, you want to sing and dance and have fun with your favorite Muppets too. Earlier you, you were talking about the, um, the ghost of Christmas present and how, in this movie, in real time, he he ages and eventually dies, you know, obviously, because, you know, the present is fleeting. But man, if he doesn't have the best song in the movie. He's also my, my favorite ghost of the three, but that's across the board in any iteration of this story. Um, and the fact that he's just a big, he kind of looks like Gimli from Lord of the Rings, but like happy. Um, and oh, also yeah. very large as opposed to teeny tiny. And that's the dude that if I was in a theme park and I saw someone walk out in that costume, I'd lose my mind. I would immediately become a four-year-old again. The Ghost of Christmas Present is always a very welcome respite from the Ghost of Christmas Past is kind of spooky. The Ghost of Christmas Present, you're always happy around him, even though like he is reminding you of mortality as well because he's dying. But he he's definitely especially in this one like so lovable and you do you like you just you you kind of imagine how great that hug would feel <laughs> yeah you did just say something and i do want to correct you real quick you said uh that the ghost of christmas past is scary uh no the ghost of christmas past is sincerely terrifying yeah, especially in this movie thing. god damn <laughs> oh my god like she came on screen and myself a fully grown adult hey. woman jumped like oh no it's spooky <laughs> they obviously stayed true to the story but in terms of character design with the puppet it looks like a baby doll head wrapped in tulle and it's frightening the puppet design itself is a little under realized in terms of like where the other muppets lie with their costuming and also i don't believe i believe that a ghost of christmas past was one of the few muppets in the movie that's unrecognizable as another muppet in another movie all the ghosts actually were created just for this i think the ghost of christmas present looks like other muppets that they've done in the past um, yeah but it is it is an original creation they were talking about having actual muppets as the ghosts but decided that they wanted, like they didn't want that level of comfort of recognizability, I think. Totally fair. And also, you know, in respect to the Ghost of Christmas Present, I'm pretty sure the only Muppet like to scale that would even fit that role would be Sweetums. And he's not, he's not the Ghost of Christmas Present. <laughs> no, no. But you're Far you're too right. angry, yeah. You're right about how unrecognizable, not recognizable, but how underdeveloped the Ghost of Christmas Past is. Because I watch it and it is spooky, but I do look at it and wonder, like, what effect were they going for here? Uh, because it doesn't even feel like they they made it to be uh, spooky. It just kind of turned 
freaked out that way. I think it's meant to have like this weird childlike ethereal nature, like almost like an angel or cherub. And it just ends up kind of being very ghostly. And uh, well, obviously that's the point, but, but like haunting in a way, like when you watch a scary movie and there's a ghost of a child, it's, it's, it's kind of like that as opposed to like, oh, I'm a spirit and I'm going to take you through the story. It's I am a dead child and I am haunting you. Oh. Or at least that's the vibe I get. It's yeah, it, it kind of has the least function, not functionality, the least personality out of mm-hmm. all of the three ghosts. You know, if I had to be super specific about it, uh, my senior year of high school, I had a teacher who would read out loud out into the class whatever books we were reading um, but he would employ the use of a puppet uh, while he was doing it except his puppet was literally just the detached rubber face of a baby CPR doll no, and he would no. use it as like a hand puppet uh-huh and and the the baby's face I guess it had a name his name was dinner and so dinner would read aloud what? to the class and so when I see uh, yeah, he was he was wild. Uh, Mr. Williams, rest in peace. But he would constantly read just like Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness was read out loud to the class by a by a baby face. And that's what I see when I see the ghost of Christmas past is that that detached rubber CPR doll face. And I I think that that's obviously going to be something that's super unique to me, but I also feel like that kind of embodies the creepiness that comes with it. Yeah, that, man, I am, I am obsessed with that story. That actually <laughs> overtakes my creepiest teacher story in that <laughs> in third and fourth grade, I had the same teacher for third and fourth grade. I was not held back. It was just, that was the way the classes worked out. Uh, the same teacher. So third and fourth grade, this teacher would start every day by reading obituaries to the class. Oh, wow. Which I never, That's intense. I never understood. I, none of us were bothered by it because we're kids. We're immortal at that point. But what a weird thing to do, right? Why, what, what could, what point, what teachable oh, yeah. moment could that be? I did. I the only teachable moment that I could possibly like extract from that would be teaching about mortality but also why are you teaching that the children in the third and fourth grade creepy teachers man that's what's that's what i get from ghost of christmas past is memories of creepy teachers (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no it's it's so funny i was talking to a friend about that last night and it i put it together and was like oh that's what that reminds me of and if you think i'm not being fully honest, I have a video of him using the puppet on YouTube. It is readily available to be viewed. Oh, wow. Uh, well, listeners, go seek that out. I don't know how you would search for that. Maybe we don't want to give away his name here on the podcast, but wow, I'm, well, I'm definitely going to have to get he, that from you. He's dead. He's, uh, he's, he's very dead. He's a decade dead. So if you want to look it up, his name is Mr. Williams, but good luck finding it. This is the first Muppet outing without Jim Henson. The film is dedicated to him and Richard Hunt. This also seems in some ways like a let's get the family together. I mean, I keep using kind of like funereal language in my descriptions of how this movie got together, but it does kind of seem like everybody's getting together and celebrating the memory of 
somebody who has passed or some people who have passed because it brings back a lot of kind of Muppet all-stars. Most of these people have been involved in the Muppets all over the years in one form or another, but they brought back Jerry Jewell to write and he sat out Muppets Take Manhattan, possibly due to the fact that he was working on Fraggle Rock. So he maybe was just too busy in a different corner of that camp. But it also, this movie has songs by Paul Williams who famously wrote much of the Muppets music in the 70s, but he hadn't actually written any any songs or worked with Jim Henson for over a decade since I think 79. Right. I do feel like you have a point where it is very much getting the band back together for old time's sake, in, or at least that's how it kind of reads. But it also, like, obviously it didn't at the time, but looking back on it, it is very much like a resurgence of the Muppets especially like in theaters um, because after that is like Muppet Treasure Island and I believe Muppets in Space is after this one as well. But yeah, no, I, f- I feel like it kind of did breathe a fresh life into the Muppets because, you know, as we were talking about earlier, you know, when you grow up with the Muppets, it's just kind of part of your childhood and you grow up and you become an adult with it. And now those adults who grew up with the Muppets have kids and now there's Muppet movies in theaters that they can go take their kids to. So I do think while it was very much like, as you put it, like a, like a funeral in a sense, it did kind of come together for all the right reasons in the end. Yeah. I guess a funeral isn't the right term. It's more like a wake where everybody is partying and a memorial. Yeah. And remembering and being happy as much as they can. I, I keep using that language, but this movie is not, it is not overly sad or miserable. There is warmth to this movie. There's um, optimism. Yeah. And it is very, it is very sweet and charming throughout. Yes. And the Muppet humor is great. Like you get the animal scene where he's, he can't go too long before he has to start just completely demolishing his drum set. And it's like that, like their humor, the Muppet humor is always not deflating. The the, the Muppet humor does not deflate the emotion in this movie. It serves as a very nice counterpoint. The Christmas Carol altogether is to remember, even in sadness, that there are things to be happy about. Oh, yeah. No, it definitely, the humor to me is very much like breaking the surface tension of the water in a way. It's like a drop that ripples in it. You can see the effect on the story, but it doesn't change the story. And I really, really appreciate that, especially when it's taking, you know, this example of classic literature that is very dour and kind of sad given the, given the mood that we were typically trying to emulate during the Christmas season, which is, you know, happy and loving and, you know, love one another, be with your family. And then out rolls a Christmas carol with like, yeah, do that or else. And then here are the ghosts. But they took that or else and they made it less scary and more almost like convivial in a way, I guess is the word I would use. I don't know. Yeah, I think they do a really excellent job breaking the tension of the story while keeping the original spirit of the story intact and not necessarily disrespecting the original material. No, I think it has a a great respect for the original material. And I think that's, like you said, and I I hadn't been aware of, that the 
Dickens' estate calls this the most accurate version, that clearly they approached it with reverence, in an irreverent reverence. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Because you can respect something and still make it silly. And I think that that is a concept that a lot of like period pieces don't really take into consideration. When you think about it, even though, yes, there are are Muppets and they are fuzzy and cute and you just want to cuddle them. But this is very much a period piece. Kind of kind of a little bit off topic. Michael Caine is the only human character other than his nephew. And the whole party, the yeah. dinner party that they have, yeah. The, and the, the flashback. And other than his nephew, his nephew's wife, and um, Belle, the woman that he loved when he was younger. Yeah. Michael Caine is the only human in this movie. He's constantly surrounded by Muppets. And the fact that he like he's just towering over them, it, it really underlines how above everybody he feels but also how isolated he is like that scene when he goes home and he's just eating cheese and bread in front of the fire mm-hmm. his dressing gown it it's a it, it's a neat little visual trick that i don't think would have worked the same if say uh, there had been more humans in this movie yeah no totally totally couldn't agree with you more i feel like if they had added more humans to the movie it would have a hundred percent broken the fourth wall whereas the current state of the movie that fourth wall is only being broken by gonzo and and rizzo so you know i i appreciate that they i guess kind of held back in that sense um also i don't know about you but when i rewatch old movies like old movies that are from more than 10 years ago i'm constantly looking for faces that i recognize oh yes i didn't know they were in this and it just completely takes that portion out of it and it's so much easier to watch i will always until the end of time have a great time watching a muppet christmas carol i completely agree so strangely enough or not maybe not strangely enough but interestingly enough maybe not even interesting actually but we'll see what how it goes um (laughs) this this began as a tv movie it was intended to be an abc movie of the week and then after the script was submitted for approval, Disney stepped in and offered to buy it as a theatrical release. And, huh. and you are correct that it kind of kicked off a little bit of a resurgence for the Muppets. Unfortunately, that didn't seem to last very long because none of their, the movies actually did that great a business. This, I think this right. lost money in theaters, but it became a big hit on video, like, like everything Disney does, basically. And I think that's the way the Muppets almost, almost always have been where they're not the most profitable thing theatrically, but there's such a a fan base for them that does support it in like later on. I feel like the only example of a Muppet movie just smashing it in the box office was the Muppet movie with Jason Segel. I didn't actually look up any of the box office. I I I didn't either, because when I think of the Muppets, I don't think box office success. I think nostalgia. But that movie in particular, I know it did really well. The second one, not so much. But the first one did really well. And it also kind of rekindled this this love of the Muppets and, you know, made it possible for a sequel to that movie. I don't know if you remember this, but on ABC, there was a short-lived Muppet sitcom that was in the style of The Office. Yeah, we, we watched all of that. Yeah, no, it's not good, but it's fun. 
it is fun. It had moments and it seemed to be like it went through so many changes that it seemed to be struggling to find its footing. But then it it did seem to find it a bit, but not not quick enough. They canceled it. And now yeah, that, not, have you not enough that? to like actually gain viewership. No, but have you watched uh, Muppets Now on Disney Plus? I have not, but I've heard about it. We've only seen the first episode so far. Which, mm-hmm. I mean, people are going to question our priorities on that, but it was a lot of fun. It seems like they might have actually cracked the formula of how to how to present the Muppets in the new media landscape. Because one thing you can say for certain is that after Jim Henson's death they've really kind of struggled with how to make the Muppets relevant. Like they had three theatrical films and I like all of them to varying degrees. I actually really like Muppets from space. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the nineties, the Muppets were appearing in, in TV movies. And those are almost. They were presenting awards at the Oscars. Like yeah. <laughs> they were, they became less of a program and more of pop culture icons in a weird way yeah and and their their movie output was pretty bad like muppet wizard of oz i remember being like i've I've never gone back to watch it It, yeah but then you get things like muppet babies and muppet babies was fantastic well that yeah that was the 80s though that was yeah that's true yeah henson was alive there's a new muppet babies that is actually pretty good Um, yeah it has like that that weird pseudo 3d animation right yeah, it's a kind of a mix because it goes into different styles at times uh-huh. of, of 2D and kind of sometimes collage and then 3D. And, I imagine um, that's a hit with your youngest. Yes, my youngest daughter loves it. Of course, I mean, she's four, so she kind of goes through phases. She hasn't watched mm-hmm. it in a, in maybe almost a year, but she was very into it. Yeah, I have a niece who's the same age and she hasn't gotten into the Muppets yet, but that's going to be my antley duty i guess is to get her into the muppets but it did take jason siegel to kind of like remind general audiences about the muppets and how good and fun they could be i i like his movie quite a bit i agree with you but i would actually give that to brett mckenzie oh with the songs yeah brett mckenzie james bobbin did a good job directing it yeah i just i feel like with that movie in particular, while the spirit of the Muppets was there and Jason Siegel did a great job playing opposite of the Muppets, I felt like the moment in that movie when I was the most engrossed in it was when they were singing the, the new songs. And I really think Brett McKenzie did the justice and really made a name for himself as more than just the quiet one from Flight of the Concords, you know? I, I like the new Muppet music quite a bit. I, it's I so liked, good. I liked Muppets Most Wanted. I, I have to admit, I haven't seen it since theaters, but I remember, well, I remember one moment in particular almost falling out of my chair laughing so hard. I thought it was, I thought it was good. So I, 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 I preferred just the Muppet movie, the one with Jason yeah, Segel, like a lot more, but yeah, no, it wasn't bad. That's the thing about, that's the thing about Muppet movies is even the bad ones are really not that bad. Well, maybe some of the TV movies, but yes, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. There's always a pleasure to be had in watching the Muppets. It's just so, it's so strange to me. So many experienced people that can't quite capture the magic that, that they had. And, you know, you never, even though Jim Henson was the creator of the Muppets, 
you never want to just give one person all the credit for that working because he collaborated with so many great people. But there, yeah. there is something to be said, though, that they couldn't capture that same feeling very often or they struggled to capture that same feeling once he was gone. He was very much the heart of the Muppets. And I don't mean that to say like, he powered the Muppets. He came up with it. Therefore, he was the core of the Muppets. I do mean that like there was like a certain sense of like empathy that came with the Muppets while Jim Henson was still around. And I we didn't necessarily lose that once he left, but it was different. There was a, a contrast to it. Um, and I think that's because the heart of the show shifted a little bit once we introduced the idea of, of grief. Of, of losing, as you put it earlier, a father figure. I mean, it has been almost like a like an evolution to watch. And I do think that the major keystone in it was losing Jim Henson. Yeah, no, it definitely, it, it lost a, a certain feeling to it that's hard to describe, but I think it also gained a different nuance to it that we didn't necessarily have while Jim Henson was on board. Well, that is that. That's fascinating, actually. I, that's not not something I I specifically considered before. In fact, it wasn't even until this recent viewing that I kind of put together the whole idea that Jim Henson had just passed away, and here is this movie that is directly addressing mortality and grief. It, it's just like it's so easy to get get lost in like the surface mm-hmm. of that. Of the Muppets are being funny. Gonzo is great, of course. Gonzo the great um (laughs) and then you you know you just know the Christmas Carol story that you can kind of like not get disengaged but just kind of like go oh I know where this is going that right it wasn't one of those viewing where I I realized I had to talk about it that I started to look more closely at it and realized oh wow there's there's quite a bit going on in almost a metatextual sense and I don't I don't mean they're breaking the fourth wall more than they normally do I just mean that you know, you, you think about the artist intent and the finished product in a, in a way I hadn't considered before. Right. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. It again, wasn't until this viewing, like you said, that I had put that together as well, but I think applying that lens to it and, and watching it through a different perspective of, oh, these people did just lose like the captain of the ship. It does add this this really lovely layer to it that I think ties the movie together and like further solidifies that this is probably my favorite Muppet movie. Oh, really? Yeah, I I love the Muppets. I've loved them ever since I was a child. I've seen all the movies a thousand times over. I'd have to give it to this one just because all of the other ones are, are fantastic. And, you know, it's, it's kind of impossible to choose a favorite, but... I can in this case because this one, it just has a special spirit to it that the other ones don't. And maybe that's because it's about Christmas. Maybe it's Michael Caine. Maybe it's because, you know, it's the first movie post Jim Hansen. I don't have an answer. It just, it feels different watching it. And it's, it's this calming nostalgia. That's a very good way to put it that I'm, I I will not, argue i think those are all valid points and as a favorite muppet movie this is this is a good choice i i i i gotta go through and like do a big deep dive where i watch all the movies in a row uh, because i can't i can't in my head rank them right now but this is 
Uh, um, it was definitely one of the best ones. Or the, the only other one that I can think of that would even be remotely close to up there is Muppet Treasure Island, but that's just because I love Tim Curry. <laughs> Honestly, if the Muppets just had like a Partridge Family show where they were just the traveling band all the time, I'd watch it weekly. I would buy DVD box sets and merchandise and Disney, get on it. You heard it here first. Send her a check. Yeah, you're goddamn right. Send me a check. Seven o'clock, Psycho sees Santa's workshop and only Lee Majors can stop them. In the night, the reindeer die. Be here. You can't show that commercial. That thing looked like the, the Manson family Christmas special. Think I'm way off base? Yes, you're, well, you're a tad off base, sir. Frank Cross is more than the youngest network president in television history. Call security. Have them change his locks and toss him out of the building. Oh, he's fired? It's Christmas. Thank you. Call the county. Stop his bonus. I want you He's a thoughtful boss. Thanks, boys. Get the nurse. A generous brother. What did he give you last year? Uh, I don't remember. A shower curtain. Did you hear him? I think you dropped something here. And a true humanitarian. I can't get the antlers glued onto this little guy. We tried crazy glue. Have you tried staples? But his life is about to change. Woo-wee! That was a good one. You are going to be visited by three ghosts tomorrow at noon. God, tomorrow's bad for me, Lou. As a matter of fact, the whole rest of the week is a washout. Anyone who thinks he hates Christmas is wrong. Go back to Jersey, you moron! It's ghosts he hates. Next up on our double bill of Christmas carols is Scrooged. A 1988 updating of the classic tale from director Richard Donner and starring Bill Murray. The film replaces the sweetness of The Muppet Christmas Carol with a bitter strain of dark humor. Following heartless TV exec Frank Cross, Bill Murray, as he oversees a multi-million dollar live live extravaganza version of A Christmas Carol. Over a couple of days, I was never quite clear on the timeline, we'll get into that. Frank finds himself subjected to more or less the standard Christmas Carol torments and lesson learning. The visitations by a deceased co-worker, the three spirits, the overworked and underpaid secretary. We all know the story. So I guess we can just get right into this. Corey, do you have any particular history with this movie? This is one that I I have to admit, I go back to quite a bit. I, I, I have since... I don't know. I guess I would have been 11 or 12 when I first saw this. It is one that I, I rewatch quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, when you first brought up the idea of doing Scrooge, my first thought was, oh, yeah, I've, I've seen that. And then I thought about it a little more and I was like, oh, I don't I don't think I've ever I've ever seen Scrooge. So I went into this with the mindset of this being a movie I've never seen before. And, you know, while I was watching it, there were definitely moments where I'm like, oh, I okay, I remember this very vividly. Um, but it, it is very clear that I had not seen this movie since I was a child. So it was really fun. You know, it was almost like watching a new movie that still had nostalgic value to it. And I wish I could forget every movie I've ever seen because it was such a a fun experience getting to rediscover it as a new movie. But no, I I loved it. I loved every second of it. I had a really good time, but I, I think that's kind of to be expected with a Bill Murray vehicle. 
but no, I, I think the, the part of it that was the best for me was just how many recognizable faces and voices there were. Um, and, you know, one of the first faces that you recognize is the $6 million man <laughs> in, yeah. that, in that opening scene. And let me tell you, when they introduced Tiny Tim as Mary Lou Retton, when I say I cackled out loud, <laughs> I screeched. It was so funny. Part of me wishes this movie came out a decade later um, so that they instead could have made the incredible joke that instead of Mary Lou Retton, it was Carrie Strug. But I appreciated the Mary Lou Retton reference. You know, everyone loves America's sweetheart. But no, I just, and just the faces that you see throughout this movie that you're just like, you completely forget that, you know, you've seen them in other things because either the makeup makes them unrecognizable or the performance that they give is almost unrecognizable. Um, one of the references that it's in this movie that I can point out exactly is uh, John Forsythe. Completely yep. unrecognizable when he first comes into screen. It took me a second and then he started talking and I was all like, oh, good morning, Charlie. Yep. Um, <laughs> but no, it's. It, I think that's what this movie does best is it, it whereas the 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 other movie the Muppet Christmas Carol was very tongue-in-cheek humor this was visual gags other you know faces that are that pop up you know you've got Alfre Woodard um obviously giving an incredible performance because I truly believe she is incapable of anything less um the nurse on set who is taking care of the sensor lady um was Mimi Bobek from the Drew Carey show? Yes, she was. And Mimi Bobek is one of my favorite fictional characters of all time because of how terrible she is. But then, you know, you have David Johansson and and Carol Kane and Bobcat Goldthwait and all these people that it's just like, I, I know that person. I know that face. I know that voice. Um, but you wouldn't necessarily know their name otherwise, especially, you know, how many people in this cast have kind of evolved into doing voice work like David Johansson and Bobcat Goldthwait. Um, I know specifically Bobcat Goldthwait does a lot of children's TV now, which is a, it's a real step up from Shakes the Clown, no? Uh, well, step up or, I mean, he, it's good to see he still has a career, but he, yes. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of his, his directing as well, that he's, yeah. I mean, he's directed some TV as well, uh, you know, but his movies, of course, God Bless America, World's Greatest Dad, Sleeping Dogs Lie. I think that was his, no, not his first, Shakes the Clown was his first, but that kind of brought him back as a yeah. directing force. But you're right, because you were saying in Muppet Christmas Carol, part of what you liked about it was that you don't get drawn out of it by seeing mm -hmm. a bunch of recognizable faces. And at the time, I wanted to say, unlike Scrooge, which right. is, is all recognizable faces. I mean, you mentioned most of them, Carol Kane, David Johansson from the New York Dolls, or, or yes. Buster Poindexter was what he was doing at the time, I think. Yeah, um, that's that's what he was um, doing at the time. But the second I saw him, I was like, oh, New York Dolls. And then his his boss is Robert Mitchum. The guy yeah. that he's jealous of is John Glover, who's a character actor I always wish would be in more things or have bigger parts in the things that he's in. Right. And his brother in the movie is his brother. So is his dad. Yeah, no, I think that's <laughs> great. Like I, I love it when 
I love it when um, a less famous family member joins like the star of the family in their movie and they end up kind of stealing the show. Not to say that Bill Murray's brother stole the show over him, but uh, he did a great job. Like I, I really, really enjoyed it. And he, the the brother in the movie, because he has three brothers of his show up in this movie. The brother um, in it actually plays his brother in the movie. Okay. So yeah. Because Brian Doyle Murray, who I, I'm a big fan of Brian Doyle Murray ever since Get a Life. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he does children's voice work now. He was Captain Knuckles on Flapjack. Oh my God, Flapjack. I haven't thought about that show in a long time. But he's in this as in the flashback as Bill Murray's dad. Yeah. Then like, I mean, to continue that, like Michael J. Pollard and Ann Ramsey play homeless people. Mm-hmm. And Michael J. Pollard is another great character actor. Who else? Oh, Karen Allen. Karen Allen as the love interest. And she is like so lovable in this movie. She is. She, she reminded me in this movie in particular of a very young Mary Steenburgen. I she, I couldn't take my eyes off her. Like whenever she was on screen, she just had like this huge, like radiating smile. And you could just feel the warmth of her character, which was really awesome, especially in juxtaposition to Bill Murray's just absolute miser of a character. But I also really, really liked his portrayal of Scrooge because it's a Scrooge that we don't know. It's a young Scrooge who is instead of being in the business of money and debt collection and, and mortgages, he's he's the head honcho for, for a television network. You know, it's a completely new vision of Scrooge that you don't really get in other iterations of A Christmas Carol. So I thought it was original. I thought it was fun. I really, really enjoyed the parallels of the original story to this one. Because while it does have, you know, Ghost of Christmas Past, Present, Yet to Come, uh, you know, it has the Bob Cratchit-esque character, but there's more than one character who takes the Bob Cratchit storyline. And there's more than one character in the Fezziwig storyline. And it's spread out in a way where the story still makes sense and it's still consumable, but it's still different than the original version. So there are twists and turns that the viewer doesn't expect, even if you do know the story very well. And I think one of the best examples of that, um, I touched on it earlier, is the the Bob Cratchit character. And yes, we we get that through Alfred Woodard's character as the, the secretary with the son. And the son doesn't have, you know, a disability that makes him walk with crutches. But in, in this instance, he can't speak. And that's very, you know, that's different from the original storyline. But then also you have elements of the Bob Cratchit storyline in Bobcat Goldthwait's character with the, you know, life crumbling down around him. I feel almost like the writers didn't want to do that to a single mother in the story. So they had to split it into two. And I think they did a great job with it. But yeah, that was one of the ones where it was most obvious to me where they they decided to, to branch off from the original story. This is a movie that, as much as I like it, and... This is this is another movie that I watch every single year with my oldest daughter. I showed it to her 
six years ago or so, and we've watched it every year since. And this is a lot of, as much as I watch it and I, I love it, this is a movie that I don't think all of it works very well. Um, some of the humor falls very flat, particularly in that yes. in the finale. There's some very like questionable choices made, uh, mm -hmm. especially in that control room when Bobcat Goldthwait he makes a a very strange like kind of gay panic joke about Bryce. Oh yeah, and he like kicks the cat or something, or the oh, right. boss that, kicks the cat. That was um, Robert Mitchum kicks the cat. Which yeah, I, yeah. I thought that was that actually was a very funny touch to me. You don't see it; you just hear a cat yowl. It's a funny moment, and uh, it is like it's such an overreaction. It is. So it but, does go back to what you were saying earlier about that, like that that comedically over the top anger. It kind of it kind of goes hand in hand with that, in, in my opinion, just because. Obviously, Bobcat Goldthwait's character is mouthing off and saying things just to rile up the boss man, um, but it works, and he takes it out on the cat, I guess. Yeah, but then the, the part that doesn't also work for me is, so there's that sensor that was like, the first time we see her, she's complaining, like, you can't show this on TV, you can see her nipples over that top. A lot of the cruelest stuff in this movie happens to her, and I say- Honestly. It's the cruelest because we don't know her as a caricature as a character. She's just a caricature. And there's something a little bit kind of sexist and misogynist about it, even though you you get the idea like, oh, they're just doing this for censors. It's supposed to be taking down, you know, uptight people. But then at the end where she's all bandaged up and she keeps getting hurt and she's in the control room all bandaged up and she looks over at Bryce, who is tied up and she just is overcome with lust and jumps on him and he's frightened no and like <laughs> she she starts like kissing him and assaulting him and it's like well this isn't funny <laughs> this is just like this this is a little gross yeah it was it was a weird moment to punctuate the ending with because it was very clearly meant to be like the tension right now because you know you got bill murray's character who who's very adamant about getting this message across and then you have everybody else in that that studio who's like okay what's gonna happen next and everybody's kind of on edge listening to this guy and then you have Robert Mitchum who's watching it from a screen at home with his wife and seemingly endless number of cats and he's got like this 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 rage value that he brings to the table because he's obviously freaking out that this guy's on air on live TV, you know, screwing up this show that they just dropped millions of dollars on. Um, how are we going to break the tension? Because clearly this is a very tense moment. And, oh, I know, let's do a gag about mistletoe where Bill Murray gets to, I guess, make out with a solid gold dancer who's probably at least 15 years younger than him at this point. Which and is, then, that, just and, to uh, interject, that... Yeah is weird because then it goes directly to him making a romantic plea to Karen Allen and she yeah. is she is moved and convinced by it but he was just making out like and talking about how he gets to do this and like on live tv it, now if you were to approach this movie from the focal point of this guy's clearly having a mental breakdown and it's not a Christmas Carol. It's a guy who thinks he's going through a Christmas Carol. Totally makes sense. But 
for it to actually have been like this guy, we're going to suspend our disbelief for a second. He was visited by three ghosts and blah, blah, blah. Like that's kind of the exact opposite way that you would expect that character to go about it, you know? And especially for her to just be like, cool, great. I'm on board. Like right after he does that, I was just like, okay, so, so you're going to watch him make out on live TV with this chick under some mistletoe. And then he's going to be like, yo, you're the one. And you're like, pack my bags. Can you get me there in three minutes, Mr. Cab driver? Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's kind of, well, I mean, it is definitely an odd choice. We're, we're going all over the place. We're doing this movie completely out of order, but that's fine. Everybody knows what Christmas Carol is. There, there's different yeah. touches to this, but we don't really need to go over it. But one thing that really struck me, and every time I watch it, I, it strikes me about this movie is everybody around Bill Murray in that final scene seems utterly amused by the fact that he has just ruined the final moment in their big show they have all been breaking their backs for yeah listen i went to theater school i know these people who live to be in front of an audience if only for a moment and i'm telling you right now if somebody stormed into that studio while a bunch of the theater people that i know and love were performing they would not have taken it that way they would not have been all smiley and laughing and oh this is a romantic moment they would have been like what are you doing get out of here security it's an odd moment i think that that ending scene where he's having a he's clearly having a breakdown uh, like we've yeah. been watching the movie so we know what happened and what led up to it but i think about everybody else watching it and all they know is he's been getting crazier and crazier throughout the week like i said i couldn't keep the timeline straight but I think this movie only takes place over two days, although a lot of stuff happens in those two days. Yes, because when he is gearing up to, in the beginning of the movie, fire Bob Goldthwait's character, um, Alfred Woodard, the first thing that comes out of her mouth is, but it's Christmas. So I personally took that to mean like, hey, it's Christmas Eve, and then the following events are all going to happen during that night but then also the ghost of christmas present takes us to bill murray's brother's house and we're seeing this in real time and then when he gives his like loving speech at the end and he's talking about how much he loves his brother and he shows the photo and everything like that it's literally they are at the same party when this is happening so it had to have all happened within like a few hours, really. Well, because the first ghost visits him and says the not first ghost, but Lou, his boss, yeah, uh, shows up and says that the first ghost will be visiting him at noon the next day. And so it shows up as he's leaving that lunch with Bryce and um, Robert Mitchum's character. I can't remember the character name. Oh, yeah. No, I can't remember his name. Either. And then from then on. It seems to be happening, like, I don't think that's Christmas. I don't think they're having a Christmas Day lunch. So the, it must be, the at the very earliest, the, the tightest this timeline can be, the first day, the beginning of the movie, is the day before Christmas Eve. And then that lunch is Christmas Eve, and then the next day is Christmas when they're doing the big special. But, sure. Or is everything, or is that special on Christmas Eve? I, I imagine it would 
be on Christmas Eve, but he he says something in his plea to the general public um, at the very end when he's speaking directly into the camera. He said he says something like, uh, "What are you doing watching TV? It's Christmas." So that made me believe that it was Christmas Day, but also it could be Christmas Eve. I the timeline is incredibly unclear in this movie, but I also don't necessarily think it takes away from the story. No, it it, it doesn't because there is a fairy tale aspect to it. More, oh yeah, more so even than I think the Muppet Christmas Carol. But totally the reason, agree. The only reason is it becomes a problem is is because Bobcat Goldthwait's character Elliot Loudermilk. Elliot Loudermilk is fired in the beginning of the movie. And the rest of the movie seems to take place over two, maybe three days. But as he's leaving, he talks about what he's going to tell his wife. But by the, like throughout the movie, he's basically become homeless. He, yeah. He's living on the streets. It seems like for a few days because he's selling blood to get a, get money that is then stolen. He's uh-huh. always got a different drink in a paper bag. So it, it seems strange that he would have a home to go home to. And I, you can imagine he got kicked out. But then that oh, he, yeah. would just, he would immediately be living on the streets. It, it, it that his story arc seems like that's a couple of months worth of incidents that are condensed into what appear to only be two days. Yes, and you know the thing about about Bob Bobcat Goldthwait's character in in this movie in particular is I think regardless of the timeline, he would devolve into that exact level of meltdown. Like if it, if you told me this movie takes place over a week, I'd believe it because that dude devolves pretty quickly. But if you also told me, oh yeah, this whole movie takes place overnight, I'd be like, honestly, yeah, I still buy it. Yeah. it It's not like a huge problem because there's, yeah. there's so many other things in this movie that are, are meant to be fantastical that, picking apart the timeline of a side character's adventures seems like like a waste of energy. Like, it's what am nitpicky, I doing? nitpicky, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's really funny. I was watching, you know, my first watch through of this movie and I saw Bobcat Goldthwait and I was like having a hard time recognizing him at first. But then he started talking and obviously his voice is a dead giveaway. But it, it made me realized through this viewing that it were it not for his iconic and distinctive voice he would have been incredible as Seymour in shop ports and then at the very end um when they're rolling the credits and they're singing of the song that personally I think has nothing to do with the movie but uh Bill Murray's character turns to the camera and just goes feed Miss Seymour and I'm just like oh I think they kind of read my mind a little bit on that one <laughs> um but yeah no the I just I just had a great time that I went into it knowing in my heart of hearts that this was not going to be the greatest Bill Murray movie I've ever seen whether or not I was right who cares I had fun I think specifically I had the most fun with David Johansson, I thought he was great. Uh, especially when they are on the set of Frisbee the Dog. He's so and much fun he in is, that moment. He, he makes it clear, like David Johansson's character, Ghost of Christmas Past, makes it very clear that nobody around them can hear them or can see them. 
And yet he's on the set of this children's show, screaming the answers back to the presenter like he's watching Blue's Clues. And it is so fun. And you can tell that he's just having the time of his life yelling, it's a bone, you lucky dog. Um, And it's just like in that moment, I kind of, I, I wasn't watching the movie. I was there and I was watching it and I was having fun watching him. And it was, that was probably my favorite like moment in the movie, but my favorite like over like overarching part of the movie that I really enjoyed was just the entire Carol Kane bit. Yeah, um, Carol Kane, and that is because fantastic. Carol Kane is chaotic. She walks into a room and she hit him in the head with a toaster at one point, and I think that speaks volumes to how seriously we're supposed to take this movie but you know i i always have a good time when carol kane's involved and i haven't really seen her in anything like currently since her run on kimmy schmidt um so to go into scrooged and not remember that she was in it and then to be surprised by seeing her always it was delightful. Like I felt like a child. You could not break my attention. It was, it was very like childlike when you see a a kid watching cartoons and there's just that undivided attention, almost like a dead stare in their eyes. Like that's a hundred percent where I went and I loved it. I think the only real umbrage that I took with uh, having Carol Kane as the ghost of uh, the ghost of Christmas present was Almost that they, they they took away from this this character that um, in the original story is meant to be like this large, jolly, almost like a like a Santa Claus presence, and they turned it into the exact opposite. It's a very tiny, almost fairy like woman because you know she had the 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 wings and the the sparkly her pretty dress as she calls it. Um, and I agree, it was very pretty. But yeah, no, I I really. I really enjoyed the first half of the movie quite a bit. It's when we started getting into the second half where you can start pointing out those inconsistencies like we were earlier with the, um, you know, the big speech at the end and the mistletoe and the very odd sexual assault, I guess you could describe it as. Um, Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm worried that might give like too strong an impression to call it a sexual assault, but yeah, it would be considered assault, you know, a workplace that, that like, yeah. it's meant to be like, it's kind of like, it's weird because it's, it's almost exactly what happens at the end of Gremlins two, which John Glover was also in. Although oh, yeah, huh. he wasn't the one being assaulted by the female Gremlin, but it's just like with that scene where Robert Picardo is in the bathroom and he's trapped by the female Gremlin who just cannot like take her hands yeah. off of him. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, it's it it does kind of hark into that, and it's very interesting that that there is that much crossover. I completely forgot the talk about what is in it, um, but uh, you know, in 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 Muppet Christmas Carol, we were talking about how sincerely one of the most terrifying things was the ghost of Christmas Past, um, and in this movie. Uh, there was also an equally uh, nightmare-inducing moment, at least for me, and that was Elliot Loudermilk slowly walking through an empty and 
dark office with a shotgun singing Santa Claus is coming to town. Yeah. So that like Richard Donner is a director that I I'm kind of 50 50 on. I like a lot of his movies. He did the Lethal Weapon movies. Of course, the first two Superman movies, the Goonies. Yeah. Wait, you said the Goonies just now, didn't I you? I did, yeah. I, I was talking. I don't listen when people when I'm talking. <laughs> um, I don't listen to myself. You're fine. Uh, so, like, but then also, he's a director that kind of sometimes confuses humor and or excitement with just being loud. And parts of the finale get to that point. I think the Elliot Loudermilk walking through singing is a moment that I actually really like. It's lit like a Lethal Weapon movie. <laughs> And it, it's Bobcat Goldthwait, so it's kind of amusing. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of that scene in Jurassic Park where the velociraptors are like slowly going through the kitchen trying to find the little boy. Yes, I, I can see that. I think that's that's kind of where my problems come with it and where we're talking about how the finale or the last half you can kind of pick apart a little bit more is because when things are supposed to be coming together, they don't always seem to come together completely organically and it feels like he's maybe trying to distract us from that by just making things louder and louder yeah no there's there's definitely um it becomes almost a little more madcap in a way and the 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 first half is very tongue-in-cheek reference humor you know silly little one-off jokes that you know you blink and you miss it kind of thing uh, whereas in the back half, it becomes almost Three Stooges-y in a way. And not in a bad way, just it, it's so stark, the difference. And it almost kind of feels like the movie itself devolves a little bit with Bill Murray's character's mental decline in a way. But I also don't necessarily want to say that Richard Donner planned that. Yeah, it. There are some very funny moments in the finale. I, one of the best edits in the movie, and I think it's just one of the funniest visual gags, is the moment after Bill Murray has the entire encounter with the ghost of Christmas yet to come, and he steps out of the elevator, and he just realizes, like, I'm alive, and it starts playing that music, the uh -huh. Ode to Joy, and he starts to, like, like he he just... He starts kissing the walls and he's so happy to be alive. And then it cuts to a wide shot and Elliot Loudermilk is just standing behind him with a shotgun to his head and Bill yeah. Murray hasn't noticed him yet. It makes me laugh every time I watch I mean, that movie. It's kind of a shame that in that scene, it calls itself out because it is very much an Elmer Fudd visual. Um, and then at one point, I, he, I think it was at the very beginning of, Bobcat's meltdown or Elliot's meltdown, I should say, that he puts the gun to Bill Murray's head and, and calls him Wabbit. So it is very Elmer Fudd in that in that respect. Doesn't and he I don't call think... him a discount Elmer Fudd as well or something like that? Knockoff Elmer Fudd? Something or, like that. Something yeah. Else? Yeah. I think I think it just kind of like leaned into its own visual gag a little bit. And it's not always a bad thing, but it is very much putting the joke in lights, you know? There is a quote in this movie that um, I, I personally think took the story and wrapped it in a nice little bow. And it is in that moment after the, the I'm alive, I'm alive, ode to joy moment. And that's, he's, he's sitting there and he's talking with, uh, 
with Elliot Loudermilk, and he says, uh, you know, the Jews taught me this great word, schmuck. And that's what I've been. I've been a schmuck. And it's so funny, too, because right after he has that realization is when he goes out and is a schmuck, I guess, with the with the the solid gold dancer under the mistletoe, you know? So it's very funny to me, not necessarily that it was written that way, but it's very much self-aware to the point where he is not self-aware in the least. Again, I'm not necessarily certain that that was intentional, but I find it as a fun little like wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of, kind of moment. There's strong moments in this. The person who wrote this, Mitch Glazer, has basically disowned the movie saying his script was funnier than what got filmed and i it might just be that richard donner his his talents don't necessarily lie in comedy there sure. are funny moments in every movie that he's made and i think he's a great action director he's good injecting like action with comedy but i think when he's just trying to be funny he falls a little flat like he 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 doesn't have quite the timing for it and maybe he just doesn't recognize it so maybe there was some stuff cut out Um, right and I I also think that you know because this film came out in 1988 this is peak Bill Murray this is Bill Murray the star at this point and I think would be remiss if we didn't mention that it's very possible that maybe Bill Murray didn't like some of the original jokes and was like let's change that you know it definitely does feel like he improvised some of his lines. There's a lot of his, mm-hmm. his, especially, uh, especially we're going back to the finale again. That's, that's just all leading there. Um, oh, I think I know what you're going to say. No, I'm, I was just going to say that, especially when he's going around and he's talking to the crew members, uh-huh. it, it feels a little bit like very lazy crowd work. <laughs> like, like a lounge, like a lounge character. It was the uh, bit with the baby doll that yeah, yeah. that broke it for me that's when i was like oh he's just being he's just being bill murray he's warming up the room Correct. Um, yeah, and that's, that, that's and that's exactly not a bad right. thing because it, it, he's good at it he is and it's not necessarily bad but i just was like these people would not be so amused by this they, they would still be a little bit maybe nervous about this very loose cannon walking around and they would definitely be a lot more angry about having their their work ruined oh yeah and and only seconds later bobcat goldthwaite fires a shotgun in the sound booth so you know i i do think that like you're right in in saying that there should be a sense of of anxiety to it almost but again it's a it's a comedy it's made for the holiday season i doubt that anxiety was something that they were trying to get across but i also think that in movies like this, while you think that you might be helping the story by removing certain elements and making it more, I guess, holiday friendly, you can kind of hurt the dynamic in a way. Now, I don't think they did that seriously in this movie. Like, I don't think they actually hurt the movie in any way. There are moments that are like, ooh, maybe not the greatest, but it makes up for it moments later. I mean... Listen, this is a movie I watch every year and I'm never upset. I'm always looking forward to it. So whatever complaints I have here, whatever whatever faults that I am admitting are in the movie or saying that I find in the movie, 
I, I overlook them almost immediately because this finale, it, it, it's so unrealistic. And yet I, I buy into the emotion of it. Like I, I think like, okay, he is not going to have a job tomorrow. His boss would not end the movie singing along with what's on TV and being really happy. Yeah. This is very unrealistic. It is emotionally manipulative on the part of the movie. I don't think it has earned as much cheer as it seems to be going out on with that, that big sing along. But all of that said, when Calvin comes up and says tiny Tim's line and Ugh. the reaction that Bill Murray has, and it cuts to Alfre Woodard and her daughter and their reaction, I legitimately tear up. It's I had to wipe it. my eyes. And this is, I, like I said, I see, I watch this movie every year and I was wiping my eyes at this scene. <laughs> just oh, watching no. this last night. So I, I don't like crying during movies. I don't oh, okay. like crying, period. But I really don't like crying during movies because I, uh, you know, for some reason feel like it's fake. Why should it make me cry? Blah, 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 blah. No, I cried. I did. I'm going to be real with you. That yeah. little boy whispering, God bless us, everyone with that toothy grin. Absolutely. 100%. That's going to get me every time. I don't even like kids. But you know what? I like that kid. <laughs> It works despite the fact that I am watching it going, okay, but all of the dozens of people standing around and the millions of people watching at home have no idea that kid has never spoken before. And yet they're all reacting. It cuts to like shots of everybody looking like, like, like amazed or, or heartworn heart, you know, their heart has grown three sizes because of the scene, but they don't have that context. In fact, they don't have context for anything that Bill Murray is saying. And yet they're reacting as if they understand what he's just gone through. Right. And, and, and like literally the minimal context that they have for this child delivering, you know, the line is pretty much what anybody would think in that moment without any backstory. And that's, Oh, that's a shy little kid. And he said the line and he said it just right. And Oh, we're all going to clap because he did a good job, but no, you're right. They're very much reacting in a way. Like it's like, Oh, he hasn't spoken in years, which by the way, in the movie, they say that he has not spoken since you saw his father get killed five years ago. How old is that child? Well, I mean, he could have been like pre-verbal at the time. He looks, I think he looks about seven or eight. What would you say? I see personally, I, I took it as he was like six years old because he just looked like a, like kindergarten age, but like seven and eight is not far off. So it's possible, but also like the, the way that they phrased it is he hasn't spoken since then. So it implies that he was verbal when it happened. So I, I, I don't necessarily know that that's like, clever casting on their part and they were like oh yes we we meant it that way i think it was also like a like an inconsistency in the story but regardless he's cute as a button and he can say that line a thousand times a day and i would react the same way every time you go from that and then immediately alfred woodard has come on next to bill murray and she's holding she's she's the one that starts the sing-along that everybody immediately joins in on and you said you don't think that I don't think it's appropriate for the end of this movie. I mean, like I I get the message and I, and I understand why that was the song that they selected, but don't you think they could have selected like a, like a Christmas song? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, 
I'm going to lose any cool credit I have, maybe. I, I like that song, that Amy Oh, no, Lennox it's a good and, song. And Al Green song. And so I think it, I think it's fine. Like I said, you, the minute you break this stuff or try to take this stuff and, and analyze it, it doesn't work. It's just so obviously manipulative. And I don't think the movie earns quite as much, quite enough of its heart. Like the flash, the ghost of Christmas past stuff, like Karen Allen is the heart of this movie, even though she's, she's not really in it that much, but the rest of the movie is so like black hearted and, and and then it ends with this sing along of put a little love in your heart and everybody just immediately joins in. I I feel like the transition there is so abrupt that it just, uh, it, it doesn't quite fit, even though I admit it works on me. Yeah, it, it definitely, it clenches your heart in a way that makes you feel like an almost like, like a, like a, like an artificial Christmas spirit in a way. But just to me, it, I feel like they could have gone the extra mile and used a Christmas song, but again, you know, following the trend of us talking about this movie, it's it, it's bordering on nitpicky. I don't have a problem with the the song selection. I just have a problem with the fact that it's not a Christmas song. But I also didn't write the movie. I didn't direct it. It's not my choice, and I'm honestly happy with the outcome. I thought it was so much fun, and I do look forward to including this and wrote the Christmas movie rotation in our house. It's a welcome addition in ours. Quickly, like. Before we wrap everything up, I will say uh, one area of the music choices in this movie work is the Danny Elfman score, which I, I know he's, he's kind of divisive. I think this score is great. I think Christmas is such a good fit for his style at this time. I agree. It's He has this sense of whimsy in his music that applies Very dark really... whimsy. Yeah, it applies really well to specifically this story but i understand like christmasy in general how it would fit he does use a lot of bells i've noticed which he is does. and the common right. complaint is that so many of his themes in the 80s and 90s sounded very similar mm-hmm. and the theme for this movie very much sounds like the theme for tales from the crypt sure so, yeah so you can you can make that complaint but i think it fits this tone and it fits this time of year so well like i would love i mean oingo boingo has been <laughs> it's 25 years now they're gone uh he uh, does yeah. have a solo album it looks like in the works i would have loved kind of a, an oingo boingo christmas album i mean that that would have been too well i mean the closest thing you're ever going to get to that is a nightmare before christmas that's true that's true so we get danny elfman doing christmas music uh, a couple of times but um I, I mean, I could see them doing like actual Christmas album and being good. I mean, that's always the like the dying gasp of any rock band. And that that that's kind of what he was trying to avoid by ending Oingo Boingo after 17 years. But I yeah. I still would have liked it. No, I agree with you. Um, Oingo Boingo is one of those bands. It's like either you know about them or you don't. There's no like, oh, I've heard of them, you know. And when I was growing up, like I had a very odd relationship with with Oingo Boingo, not because like my parents listened to it. My uncle and aunt, I only have one cousin and she just so happens to be exactly my age. So we used to hang out all the time growing up and her mother 
my aunt is um she has a very eclectic taste in music and most of the stuff she listens to is stuff that I've just sincerely never heard of not for lack of trying it's just it's so just kind of out there and and there's odd just so and, much music yeah and so when when she was playing Ango Boingo for me the first time I heard them I must have been like six or seven and I was just immediately like this is so different than anything I'd ever heard and to be able to recognize that at such a young age like that just kind of followed me into my adulthood so like now when I listen back to old Ango Boingo music it's just like it really is kind of ahead of its time and and very um, much of its time as well Yes. And I think a really good example of that is Dead Man's Party. I mean, like, obviously that's everybody's go-to Oingo Boingo song, but I think that's because of how well it does it. It it kind of became more mainstream and more recognizable to people who didn't automatically know who Oingo Boingo was. Um, so it really blends that that weird, kooky kind of kind of just left of center Danny Elfman vibe to it but it also does bring in that like kind of weird 80s uh multiple piece band vibe because they had so many members you know my introduction actually came the the track weird science was kind of a minor hit i think it was pretty big on radio for a little while and i i seem to remember there were like some coca-cola ads that Mm -hmm. used it and so I, I remember hearing that song a lot on the radio and liking it and and really wondering what it was. But it was I was at an age where I just wasn't buying music on my own. Like everything yeah. I listened to was whatever the radio in the car was playing. Yeah, whatever um, your parents listened to. Yeah. So it wasn't actually until years later, it was their final album that really got me like, oh, my gosh, Oingo Boingo. These guys are great because the college radio station up in Alaska played it. At mm-hmm. least once, because I caught the song Insanity and then immediately just like over the next month or two bought everything in the discography. <laughs> I don't think I actually physically own any Oingo Boingo like albums or CDs or anything like that. But they definitely played like a really big influential part in my in my music taste growing up. And, you know, I have to give credit to my Aunt Nancy for that because without her taste in music, I just, I simply never would have been exposed to Oingo Boingo. And I can't really imagine where my taste in music would be without that exposure. But yeah, like to, to hear that same vibe and that, that same almost, it's like a genre in and of itself. Like, so to hear that sound in movies that aren't like the nightmare of a logic kind of kind of sense to the soundtrack that gives the movie that 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 little bump it needs in in my opinion so i, I guess back to the movie just a little bit to, mm-hmm. to wrap all this up we talked about the ghosts of christmas past and present david johansson and carol kane they're both great yeah this movie has one of the coolest ghosts of christmas yet to come i've ever seen I agree. I think the design of this character was phenomenal. Whoever decided that its face was going to be a TV that just kind of like reflected back to Bill Murray, his face and kind of like a, like a static perspective. Yeah. Oh my God. It was such a perfect choice. 
and such a cool design. It was very art house. It had this sense of like modern art to it that was edgy and cool and and it was intriguing, but all the while it had this this looming um, sense of danger to it. Like he doesn't have a face. I'm just seeing my own face back at me as though I were looking at myself. So it is very much like holding up a mirror, both like honestly, truly holding up a mirror and figuratively holding up a mirror. And I think that it's such a pivotal point in the character arc that it makes sense, but it's also just, it's really cool doing it. And so often you see these these huge missteps um, when it comes to set design and, and, and costume design where they try so hard to be edgy and modern and cool and it just doesn't work. And this is one of those those few instances where whoever was in charge of costuming, they did the damn thing. It was great from the TV screen face to the, the decrepit souls inside of the rib cage. Which was to uh, me a very night of nightmare on Elm street moment. Yeah. Uh, nightmare on Elm street. Uh, t- to me, it was very a uh, total, total recall in a way. Oh, okay. Um, you know, um, but like not, not like super, super total recall, but like reminiscent of, but it also had like that kind of Jim Henson vibe to it, but like, um, like labyrinth kind of. Yes, definitely. I, I, I thought it had a little bit of muppy, a little bit of muppetiness to it. One thing that I really like that kind of, it took me a couple of rewatches to kind of catch on to this, that all of the ghost of Christmas yet to come visitations all the the visions that it it shows bill murray we go through the tv to get there and everything in that is so heightened and unrealistic and expressionistic in a way that it's kind of like a warped tv version of what his futures could look like like can i tell you it reminded me of uh that scene in willy wonka when they're going through the tunnel and there are those those projections on the walls of like the centipede crawling and things like that. But it's also just like that mild distortion that like kind of takes you out of the reality of it. Like even then when it goes to um, to Karen Allen's bit where it's showing what happens to her in the future and she's become very cold hearted. She's she's yeah. turned her back on charity. She's very pale. Like she's got like almost Joker makeup on. It, yes. And, and it aged her perfectly. <laughs> and they've got like, she's in this like kind of ethereal looking white. It's, it's kind of smoky. Tim Burton-y. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it, th- this segment of the movie got a little bit Tim Burton, a little bit Terry Gilliam as well. But I also feel like that's the point in the movie where it's appropriate. Oh, definitely. And yeah. it's really great. Um, so the the <laughs> we get to the point where we're seeing that Bill Murray uh, or Frank in the movie is dead and they're, his brother is there and they're cremating the body. Yeah. Is it is it just me or did his brother in kind of old age makeup with a mustache look an awful lot like Paul F. Tompkins? You know, I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> However, now that you mention it, yes, 100%. But like in a in a caricature-y way. Um, yeah. But that's also, Paul of Tompkins, with all due respect, is a caricature with his, with his dandy suits and his mustache. But, you know, I, I did see that and you're not 
wrong at all. And now I think I'm going to struggle to unsee it. <laughs> I know I, it caught, it got me this time, this viewing in the wide shot. I was like, it's Paul F. Tompkins. And then it gets closer to him. Like he still looked like Paul F. Tompkins. To that me. happened to me too. With actually uh, with Bill Murray's brother's significant other in the movie. Windy, Windy Malik. Yeah. The when, is the yeah, actress's name. When I first saw her, I was like, oh, Terry Hatcher. Oh, see, I just, I just know her as Windy Malik because she's been on, um, she was on Just Shoot Me for a while. Uh, I'm not. Yeah, like, she was huge... also. Oh, she was a voice in something. Like her voice is very familiar. I just yeah, can't. she's a voice right now on on Owl House, which my um my partner and daughter are watching. But yeah, she was like a she was a fashion model. She was like a a really big model before she became an actress. And I I just I've always recognized her. And maybe it must be from Just Shoot Me. I don't know what it is that I just always know. Other That's... Than Alec. I got it. I figured it out. Her voice, then I was like, she was in a voice acting thing and I couldn't remember. She was the wife of the of John Goodman in The Emperor's New Groove. Yes, yes, yes. It, it, it's like Helen Hunt with that just very specific voice that when you hear it, you know what it is, but you don't immediately know who it is. But you're like, oh yeah, that sounds like that person who did this. And it just so happens to be. But um, yeah, no, I on first glance, I thought it was was Terry Hatcher and I was going through the IMDb page like why is she listed so low and it's because it's not Terry Hatcher yeah uh um, but no I just it was a, it was a really well casted movie it, it's great there's like every face you see is recognizable in some way and that that's sometimes a bad thing but I think in this one it, it's fun and everybody in it is really memorable I think yeah, no, absolutely. I don't think there was a single performance in that movie that I can point to and say that was not a good performance. Do you uh, do you have anything else you want to say or do you think we've kind of covered it? I think we've covered it. All right, we're back and we're going to go over our top five this week and our top five kind of a little different but we're just gonna we're just gonna name some of our go-to holiday movies and like i always say these aren't necessarily our favorites they're just the ones that we find ourselves returning to again and again over the holiday season i'm gonna go first and you know a couple of the ones on my list we've already talked about a little bit i'm gonna just take it off the table scrooge obviously i go back to this movie every year and for whatever faults i find with it whatever I may have said back there in the segment about it. It is a movie that I look forward to watching every year. I mean, no, I, I agree with you. I can't wait to, to put this in my rotation. But for my number five movie on the list, I went ahead and put in Home Alone. I really love that movie. I watch it every year at my grandparents' house. Uh, Kevin McAllister is just the perfect little antagonist to these to the wet bandits and it's always fun there's always jokes that you're gonna laugh at there's jokes that you pick up on that you didn't recognize before even though you've seen it a million times it's just it's just a good movie so number five home alone just last night i was telling telling amber we should probably show our oldest daughter home alone in particular because there's another movie all right i'm just gonna call an audible i'm taking one off my list i'm gonna name this one even though 
it, it isn't yet part of our annual rotation. It has just become it. There's a French movie called Dial Code Santa Claus. And I think I mentioned it to you in a text. You did. Where, we were we were discussing that one when we were discussing possible possible movies, and uh, I had never heard of it. Yeah, it, it's a French movie, I believe, from 1989. Um, this very rich kid with a bunch of toys, like he he's, and you know he, he's mechanically inclined. He has like builds little booby traps and everything, and his home is invaded on Christmas Eve by basically a lunatic dressed as Santa. And that's the setup for a horror movie, yet it is more in line with Home Alone than uh, than an actual horror movie. It, it sounds never... like Home Alone meets Funny Games. Uh, a little bit. It, it is kind of more of a, a cat and mouse. Um, he's There's never like any like torture. Um, sure. But it, it came out in 89. It didn't actually get released here in the States until about a year ago. Uh, it was kind of a big deal. Like it was a movie you could get imported, but there was never an official American release. Hmm. I liked it, was not overly impressed with it, but my daughter is now very much looking forward to making that part of our annual tradition. She's already like, like excited to watch it again this year. So that that's, that's, that's a go-to that that's mainly a, sure. a family go-to because of my family uh, because my daughter really wants to watch it. But mm -hmm. um, I look forward to seeing it as well. Again, your turn. Great. So my number four uh, moving on up is the Santa Claus. Okay. The Tim Allen murder yes. Santa Claus movie. Yes. And can I, can I tell you, it is, my preferred version of elves when they have elves in christmas movies a lot of times it's either fully grown adults who are made to look small or unfortunately sometimes it's the exploitation of little people but in the santa claus it introduces this idea that the elves are children and as a child watching that all i wanted was to be judy the elf it's all I wanted. She was so cool to me and she made the perfect hot chocolate. And that's what I wanted to do. As I get older and as I, you know, watch a lot of these movies that I used to watch when I was a kid, I'm starting to recognize the adult humor in it. And this is one of those movies that every time I watch it, there's a new joke. There's a new joke I just didn't get the first time. And hopefully it just, it never stops being fun. You know, it's, I'm a few years older than you, and I yeah. think it's it's that few years that makes a big difference because this came out when I was 16, and I was I was maybe just a little too old for it, and sure. it, it didn't it didn't grab me. I just was was not interested. I, I've seen it, but maybe you know I'm, that's the beauty of having kids. You get to revisit all these things and and not have your your cynicism in place. You get to see it through their eyes. Okay, so my next my next one that I'm gonna go with is well i actually just did an episode on this so maybe this is another cheat as well but krampus krampus has become an annual tradition since it first came out uh my oldest loves this movie and uh well your turn your turn yeah um so the next one on my list is actually an animated film um it is the how the grinch stole christmas animated version the original Yes, with Boris Karloff. Yes. So this movie, I have it at number three. I toyed with it for a while. It was at number one. 
Um, but I decided ultimately to move it down the list, mostly because one, it is not a full length feature film. It's very short. I'm actually, I'm pretty certain it was just made for TV. Oh, that's okay. I have a, I have a TV yeah. special in my list as well. And I, I really should tell people this, your top fives don't need to be ranked. They, like, they don't even need to be your favorites. They can just be whatever you want to mention. Sure. Um, well, then, yeah. So, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Um, I went through a phase when I was younger. Um, and by younger, I mean age five and under. Uh, when my parents could not get me to eat anything unless they lied to me and told me they were serving me roast beast. I very much love this movie. It has such a special place in my heart, specifically the moral of the story. I didn't even understand what the moral of a story was growing up, but I knew that I was very touched by this one, specifically when they all grab hands at the end and, and sing about Christmas. I find it very touching. I love it very much. And I, I could watch it in the middle of July and be just as happy. Yeah, no, it is a classic for a reason. Mm -hmm. Okay. So my next one, um, in no order is nightmare before Christmas. And my list here, I am simply going off of movies that I watch every year. And a lot of this is due to my daughter. Um, There's one that was almost on my list that I do not like, but I decided like, no, I'm going to switch that up. But Nightmare Before Christmas is a movie that I unabashedly do love. It it is so great. Everybody knows why it's great. It is unavoidable. You can't go anywhere without seeing Nightmare Before Christmas something because of how much it's been commodified. But beyond that the movie itself is just it's great it's it's perfect yeah no it's uh that that one actually is not on my list um but that was another movie that when I was a very young child was just on constant rotation to the point where my parents hid the VHS tape of it oh no because I, I played it too much it's fair it's fair man I get it I obviously don't have any any children of my own so I can't technically relate but i do know that children have a tendency to wear things into the ground and if hiding it is what brought my parents momentary peace during the holidays then that's fine oh no i i i i encourage those uh those obsessions in my kids even if they're stuff i don't like it's a good movie i i'm i'm now like hmm, should that have been on my list but no i think i'm i think i'm gonna Stay true to my list. And the next one on my list, number two, we've already discussed at length. That's A Muppet Christmas Carol. That would probably be the first movie on my list that I would recommend to somebody looking for a family-friendly Christmas movie. Agreed, agreed. My last one that I'm going to mention uh, is another, it, this is my TV special. I'm going to go with Year Without a Santa Claus. I forgot about that. It's, I mean, all those Rankin Bass are varying levels of charming. Like everybody remembers Rudolph and, and Frosty and Frosty, but there, like some of those are a little bit like kind of suspect. But Year Without a Santa Claus, I guess I'm picking it just because I love the music in it so much. I love that the song that the Miser Brothers sing, and yeah. I hum that. I hum that all the time. I like the Heat Miser. Yeah, there's probably not. Like Christmas or no, 
there's probably not a, a month that goes by that I'm not just like humming it for a day or two. Hmm. You know, it's, it's funny that you say that because the number one on my list is actually also one of those movies where it's like, yeah, it's a Christmas movie, but I quote it all the time. You know, there, there is no music in my number one movie though. No songs, but my, the two movies that didn't make it to the list, but you know, were super honorable mentions for me. Um, I know one of them we discussed prior to this episode and that's uh, Just Friends. So I'm going to be the first person to say it's a bad movie. It's oh, hmm. not great. Well, um, I'm glad I didn't watch it. Well, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a, it's a bad movie like you shouldn't watch it. I'm saying it's a bad movie that like knows it's not going to win any awards. It's your early 2000s Ryan Reynolds vehicle. So think a la Van Wilder, um, that kind of raunchy humor, but it's set in, you know, this guy's hometown um, over Christmas. And he is, he was a fat kid in high school who got made fun of. And then he moved out of his hometown and he made something out of himself and he became a music executive and he's got a hot pop star girlfriend who's dumb as rocks and they come home for the holidays. And it's just like this clash of, of worlds in a way where he's from this like highfalutin music society. Like we have money and recording artists and I hang out with Jay-Z on the weekends kind of thing. Um, and his hometown is very quaint, very, um, you know, door-to-door caroling, if you will. Uh, it's very funny. I really enjoy it. It's a big one for me and my siblings, but like in terms of Rotten Tomatoes rating, I wouldn't be surprised if it only had like 60%. And then the other movie that I had as a runner-up uh, was Elf. But that was just because, you know, it's fun. It's Will Ferrell. You can't really go wrong. I mean, you can. I'm not the biggest Zoe Deschanel fan, but whatever. I have fun watching it, and that's what matters. But my yeah, number, but my number one movie actually is a Christmas story. Now we're talking. Yes, that is my number one Christmas movie, and that's not because it's on 24 hours a day on TBS. It has that level of nostalgia, like every Christmas Eve, I would go to my grandmother's house and this movie would be on in the background, but it's so funny. It's so well-written from every character's perspective. And I think the older I get, the more I relate to the dad in that movie. <laughs> of course, of course. And it's actually, it's actually funny, um, completely uh, irrelevant to you know, recording this podcast, um, I'm sitting at my desk and my desk 100% of the time, 365 days a year has a lamp on it. And that lamp just so happens to be a two foot recreation of the leg lamp. You know, when I say that this is one of those movies where it's like, even, even if it's not Christmas time, I can quote this movie 100%. It's Oh man, it's just so funny with the, the the fixing the tire and the breaking of the lamp and the the pink bunny suit. It's just there's so many iconic moments. You you can't deny it as a Christmas classic. Okay, so I I think well we've covered those. Uh, do you have anything that you would like to talk about or plug before we take off? Uh yeah, actually, real quick, I wanted to I wanted to talk to you about Planet Scum. 
so Planet Scum is a triannual sci-fi zine uh, that's published by Spark and Fizz Books. Um, the website, you can check them out at. It's planetscum.space. Uh, scum has two M's in it because they're fancy. <laughs> um, so yeah, planetscum.space. Uh, basically, every few months they release this online zine that is sci-fi creative writing in different like lengths and mediums. And it's, it's truly one of the last standing zines out there. But it's also in such a fantastic science fiction vein that you don't really get very often. And I would be remiss if I didn't plug them at the end of this. You know, I've really been enjoying their work through um, this quarantine. And I hope that everybody goes and checks them out. All right. That sounds great. I will I will definitely look that up. I'll throw a um, well, maybe maybe I'll throw a link in some of the notes. So that's going to basically do it for us this week. Um, uh, of course I should mention metallic dice games. If you go to www. I mean, nobody needs to say www anymore. HTTP colon slash slash. Yeah. Yeah. And www. Why did that become what we say when worldwide web is faster? It's less syllables. I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So, um, if you go to metallic dice you'll find there, uh, bunch of cool stuff like dice and dice related merchandise for gaming needs my partner amber who's been mentioned a few times in this show she recently designed a series of enamel pins for them they're up for sale now we actually just got our copies in the mail today and they look amazing they are bigger than i expected them to be but they look really cool i'll post some pictures uh they i probably posted pictures a few times by now if you go there and shop, see anything you like, enter the code two heads, T-W-O-H-E-A-D-S. That gets you 10% off of your final order and helps support this show. If you are enjoying it, please head on over wherever you get this podcast, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, spread the word. It's always appreciated. And you can follow us on all of the major socials, Instagram and Twitter at two headed pod. And there's also a Facebook page. You should know how to look that up by now. Uh, thanks for listening and happy holidays. And we will see you again next week for another fun episode.